Welcome to a new edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today's show is produced by Aaron Babcock, our new producer. We wish the best to Dana, who has now moved on to greener pastures, but will still be helping Heartland History uh, when she can. Today we are joined by Matt Staley, a professor of history at Albany State University in Georgia. And today we will be discussing Matt's recent book, published earlier this year, entitled The Loyal West, Civil War and Reunion in Middle America. The book was published by Illinois State University Press. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hi. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background uh, as a Midwesterner and where you grew up and how that led you to this project? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm originally from uh, southern Illinois. I was born in Evansville, uh, Indiana. I come from uh, a long line of Illinoisans. and uh, lived in uh, the state of Illinois for the first 22 years of my life. I did my BA work at the University of Illinois in Champaign, um, my master's at the University of Louisville, um, and moved up the river once again uh, to do my PhD at the University of Cincinnati. Um, so um, the, uh, I'm, I'm very much from, uh, professionally and personally, the area um, that, that my research focuses on. How would you describe this area where you grew up? What is Evansville like? Uh, well, Evansville is an old river city. Um, it has uh, a lot of residual um, German-Americanism, um, and it also has a lot of residual uh, upland southernism. Um, so it's, I like to say that it's the, one of the places, maybe the only place in the world where you can go into a tavern and, and order uh, um, uh, catfish uh, with a side of schnitzel and cornbread um, and uh, sauerkraut uh, on the same plate. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Well, tell us about this book, Matt. It uh, it sounds incredibly interesting, and in particular, tell us about how you explore the regional distinctions within the Union Army. And what I mean by that is how the Union Army of the East uh, may have been different from the Union Army of the West. Yeah, um, the thrust of the book uh, is is what I call the loyal West, um, and uh, which is to distinguish what develops during the war and after the Civil War as the, the loyal West from the antebellum West, which thought of itself uh, in, in some ways as as a you know generally politically unified region, even though uh, it wasn't when it wasn't uh, expedient. Um, that was in Western Westernness in the nineteenth century being centered on the idea of compatibility, fundamental compatibility between slavery and freedom, um, whether through um, popular sovereignty um, or uh, the uh, extension of the Missouri Compromise Line or what have you. Um, But the loyal Western identity that I argue develops during and after the war um, really comes out of distinctions, regional distinctions between the East and the West and the Midwest, or what becomes the Midwest, and the South prior to the Civil War. Um, so I argue basically that um, there were, you know, discrete differences um, in terms of regional identification between Western armies and Eastern armies during the war. Um, and uh, those were evident from soldiers' letters, uh, newspapers, and, and other sources 
that I include in, in, in the study, but you see them most evidently um, and distinctly in the uh, review of the Grand Army Review um, at the end of the war in Washington, D.C., where soldiers talk about the differences between the sort of the, the rugged, um, uh, taller, more, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, um, yeah, rugged and, and, and uh, veterans of, of Sherman's armies, um, and uh, the um, eastern, more stately, well-dressed, and primp and proper veterans of the Army of the Potomac. And I argue that that, that narrative um, of the, the idea of, of, of Westerners who end up staying loyal to the Union um, begin or uh, forms a, a vein of collective memory after the war in which Western soldiers argue that they're not only are they superior soldiers, um, many of them having, having been nearly undefeated in, in campaign, uh, but they also produce the war's most important political and military leaders, um, Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, uh, etc., Sheridan, and that although they waged uh, in some ways a harder and more destructive war against the Confederacy in the West, that emancipationism, or what, what David Blight has called uh, emancipationist memory, is, is far more subdued in the West than it is uh, in, in the Eastern memory of the war. Well, you focus on memory, which I want to get to in a moment, because that's such an important part of American historiography these days. But before we get to memory, uh, let's talk about uh, the reality of the situation during the war. Would you say that these Western regiments were, in fact, better fighting units and had more success and uh, may have been more militarily proficient than their Eastern counterparts? Uh, I would argue, yeah, probably so. And if, and if you take uh, uh, Stephen Woodward's study, um, Nothing But Victory, um, in, in, uh, at face value, in which the, the title, Nothing But Victory, I'm referring to the Army of the Tennessee, um, gives you some idea of how Western soldiers understood themselves, too. Um, um, it didn't take long for, for many of them after the war to realize that they had started as a small army uh, at the southern tip of Illinois and advanced through Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, Mississippi, um, up through Georgia, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, and ended the war around Bentonville, whereas they looked at the Army of the Potomac as having covered you know, roughly 100 miles over the course of the war and lost, you know, many campaigns and, and many battles, of course, argue, arguably to superior Confederate leadership. Um, but yeah, Western soldiers definitely saw themselves as superior soldiers, superior leaders, and a superior fighting forces during the war. Did these voices in the Western armies and did the memory that they uh, preserved after the war, did that include the idea that if it weren't for the Western armies, the Republic would have splintered and that the Eastern armies would not have been capable of winning the war by themselves, so that these Western armies were critical to victory. Yeah, yeah, I think they definitely um, thought of themselves that way. And um, there is a great quote um, from, and one of the ways to sort of get at how, how these veterans think of themselves as Union veterans also, but in addition to being Union veterans, to being Western veterans specifically. So there's a great, a great quote from an army of the Society of the Army of the Tennessee meeting in 1874, in which John Pope 
says, uh, when the war was over, we found that the president of the United States was a Western man, the vice president was a Western man, the speaker of the house was a Western man, the secretary of the treasury was a Western man, the secretary of war was a Western man, the secretary of the interior, the postmaster general, the attorney general, he goes on and on talking about the whole power of the government in both civil and military departments being passed into the hands of Westerners. Now, he's using a fast and loose definition of the West, but the fast, you know, the definition of the West has always been fast and, fast and loose and you know, um, applied um, with sometimes you know, carelessness, but, but also um, to, for politically and socially specific reasons. It sounds like, Matt, that uh, you are of the opinion, uh, along with some other scholars in, in recent years, that the Civil War period and the Civil War itself was crucial to the formation of Midwestern identity in the mid-19th century. Yeah, um, I, think, uh, I think that it absolutely was. And what I argue over the course of the book is that there was a general use of the term West um, prior to the Civil War that often included the, the geographic area, not only from the Old Northwest um, and the Great Lakes region, all the way through um, the sort of the butternut belt of the Ohio Valley, um, small slaveholding um, parts of, of Kentucky and, and Missouri, but also included parts of the, what I would term maybe the plantation west of Western Tennessee, Arkansas laid claim to that title sometimes, sometimes Mississippians did. Um, but but uh, that idea of, of being a Westerner but being loyal to the Union, which is to say we are not disloyal Westerners, we are, you know, as so what happens after the war is that as sort of Confederate identity um, and memory develop in places like Kentucky and Missouri, which, you know, as the adage goes, uh, Kentucky becoming Confederate after the war, this sort of Union memory develops on the other side of the river uh, in the lower Midwest, um, in which um, these veterans see themselves as not only, yeah, not only the saviors of the Republic, but Midwestern identity becomes in some sense um, attached to this sort of integration into the nation state and doesn't have, you know, going into the 20th century, the sort of historical burdens that the South, that we associate with the South, to, to quote uh, C. Van Woodward. So tell us how the uh, identity and these memories actually acted in a specific historical sense. Um, tell us how they were formed and how a discourse around them developed. Uh, was this, um, were the Grand Army of the Republic Lodges a place for this m memorialization and the preservation of these memories? Was it newspaper columns? Was it letters? How did you get at this whole question of the creation of these memories or the solidification of these memories, I should say. Yeah, I look um, a lot at newspaper sources, um, Grand Army of the Republic uh, speeches, um, veteran society meetings. Most of these are, and I'm kind of on, on board with, with Stuart McConnell's larger um, study of, of the Grand Army of the Republic. These are mostly sort of middle class, um, petite bourgeois um, driven narratives um, that, that, that come out of uh, the veterans groups. Um, so one thing I did was sort of look at the uh, Grand Army post records of, I think, about 50 or 60 
um, Grand Army of the Republic posts um, in in southern in the southern half of Illinois. Um, but this the, the memory develops. Um, not only I argue um, it, it, it's not important in the isolated sense that these are just things that veterans are talking about and they don't disseminate into the, the wider world. But I argue that the basic tenets of the loyal West, um, which include um, this sort of regional uh, com- you know, competition, to put it lightly, but antipathy um, uh, sometimes as well with the East, um, and as well as and not only anti, not only the, 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 the uh, absence of emancipationist memory, but sometimes active hostility um, to uh, to emancipation and African American participation in the Civil War. Um, I also argue those those feed into larger um, social questions in the Midwest after the war. Um, for instance, um, the region of Southern Illinois. Um, I think of the fifty or sixty GAR posts I went through. I found, I believe, two that were racially integrated, and in no cases were there black veterans rising to any sort of uh, important rank within the posts, um, and that within those segregated posts, um, you have, you know, in the society at large, um, the 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 rise of sort of what I, what I call a new white supremacy that replaces the old uh, racial exclusion laws at the state level um, during the antebellum period. Um, it comes to include things like sundown towns, um, racial um, banishments, purges. Um, lynchings um, through the kind of, I, I would say, in some ways, set a pattern for Midwestern spa- you know, spatial relations and, and white-on-black violence going into the 20th century, into the Great Migration period. Can you explain for our listeners uh, uh, what uh, Sundown Town is and what evidence you found for Sundown Towns and also the idea of Banishment. Yeah, um, a sundown town, um, just generally speaking, would be a, sound, a town that would have a, a, a local law on its books in which um, African Americans, specifically, but, but also depending on what region of the country you're in, it also applied to Hispanics uh, or uh, Asian Americans. That um, essentially, people of color would have to be out of town before the sun went down, or they would be subject to arrest um, in the best case scenario, um, or mob violence sometimes in the worst case scenario. Um, and these become prevalent um, all through the lower Midwest uh, after the Civil War, between really, um, between Reconstruction and, 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 and World War II, and arguably in some places even after that. But I argue that they're a, uh, they're, they are a replacement for the state, formal state um, exclusion laws that existed in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and other states that uh, forbade um, African Americans from from moving into the state. Period uh, before the Civil War. So local, sort of localized neighborhood and community and town level violence uh, begins to replace the sort of statewide um, racial exclusion after the war. How how does a historian? This is a methodological question. How does a historian? get a better sense of what is a sundown town and how do you find evidence of a town uh, adopting these restrictions on who can be there after after sundown? 
Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, and luckily for me, a lot of other historians, a few other historians have kind of done the dirty work with regard to that. Um, if you, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Jim Lowen and Brent Campney and a few others um, who went through and look at, looked at census records um, and saw um, precipitous drop-offs um, in the numbers of African-American um, people living in certain communities over the course of a short time period where all of a sudden um, the black community just disappears overnight. Um, there are other things that are in um, the newspaper record, um, and they are sometimes very uh, explicit about what has happened. Um, and then other times that they use um, more coded language, and it requires a little more inference on the part of the historian to understand really what's happening. Um, but there are large-scale racial banishments that begin during the war itself. Um, I'm thinking of you know, Washington County, Indiana, for instance, where um, as a result of partly in response to unpopular um, union policy in terms of racial liberalization of the emancipation black soldiers, that um, that the communities begin to banish um, African American um, uh, people who had lived there in some cases for decades. Um, Generally speaking, um, white people on the north bank of the Ohio River were quite sensitive to the idea of black migration. Um, they, you know, uh, Republican and Democrat alike before the war realized um, that uh, it was in their best interest to keep the South's racial labor hierarchy intact um, because uh, an influx of black workers uh, into the lower Midwest, they felt, would... Um, create uh, unemployment and a decrease in wages. Um, so um, it was uh, a labor question as well as a cultural question. We are talking today with Matt Staley, a professor of history at Albany State University in Georgia. He is the author of the new book, The Loyal West, Civil War and Reunion in Middle America, published by University of Illinois Press. <clears throat> Matt, you mentioned the antipathy for the East in these Western armies, but let's talk about the post-war antipathy toward the South. Uh, when I see the title of your book, The Loyal West, what immediately springs to mind is the disloyal South. How big of a part was, was that view of this discourse? Uh, it was a major part. Um, and it, again, like the Royal West uh, concept itself, begins during the war. So you have um, a region um, that is considers itself in, in the lower Midwest um, a region of uh, political and cultural moderates, caught between um, what they would think of as fanatical Yankees and fire-eating slaveholders. And they really, you know, uh, they, they rally behind ideas like the Crittenden Compromise or... Um, uh, the Corwin Amendment, um, and over the course of the war, their perception of the South begins to change, and you see it in soldiers' letters, you, you read it in newspapers, um, in which um, they, uh, entering the South for the first time, coming into contact with African Americans, slavery, um, they begin to exoticize or confederatize uh, places, not only that are in the Confederacy, but also in Kentucky. And on the flip side, um, and, and someone like Patrick Lewis has done great work on pro-slavery unionism in Kentucky um, and how that concept of um, supporting sl support for slavery while also remaining loyal to the union was a, a losing endeavor in the long term in Kentucky. And, and Kentuckians had to choose eventually between one or the other. And as a result of this, um, 
the the historical memory in Kentucky seems thoroughly com- Confederate compared to the north side of the river, um, which is thoroughly Union. So in some ways, it widens the Ohio River as this commemorative rift um, builds during and after the Civil War between uh, the free states and the slave states, even the slave states that stay loyal to the Union. Matt, uh, when you received your Ph.D. at uh, University of Cincinnati, you worked with Christopher Phillips, who is the author of the new book, The Rivers Ran Backwards, which is a study of uh, this period of time and the divisions in the Midwest during the Civil War period. That book, by the way, by Chris Phillips, won the annual book award by the Midwestern History Association uh, this past June at our meeting in Michigan. So everyone should check that out. But what I'm interested in is what seems to be a small boom in interest in the Midwest during the Civil War era, as represented by your new book and Christopher Phillips' new book. Do you think that that is true? Do you think that there is a trend developing right now? Uh, I, if, if, yeah, I think, I think it, it might be a small trend that, that might be uh, leading the way into a larger trend. It seems like there's a lot of good dissertation work being done right now on the Civil War and the post-war period uh, in the Midwest. Um, but I think, um, you know, in, in terms of traditional, very traditional Civil War historiography, um, so much of it has been concentrated on what you might think of as a north-south binary, um, in which um, uh, scholars would study something, in, you know, the north, uh, so to speak, monolithically speaking. But really, they're talking about, you know, Massachusetts and New York, and, and while scholars looking at the south would look at Tend to, tend to view source bases in maybe South Carolina or Virginia. Um, so the, the more complicated regions of the country, the Ohio Valley specifically, um, and, and parts of the Midwest, really remained understudied, um, though, um, and I think that that has not, not only to do with the, the concentration of sources, um, though there are great and plenty and, and much underused sources in the Midwest, but also the sort of academic centers of gravity Um, being on the coast as well, historically speaking. We're talking with Matt Staley, the author of the book The Loyal West, Civil War and Reunion in Middle America, recently published by University of Illinois Press. Matt, you are also involved uh, with the very important journal Ohio Valley History. Can you tell us more about that journal and your role there? Yeah, um, my role there is, is relatively recent. Um, I just took over um, the position of book review editor over the last few months. Um, but I've been a, um, a reader and subscriber to the journal for, for around a decade. Um, and uh, it, it has longstanding associations with the University of Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Museum Center, and the Filson Historical Society in Louisville. So it kind of operates on both sides of the river as well. Um, but we use sort of a broad definition of the Ohio Valley to look at, um, you know, a region um, as, 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 as a point of historical analysis. Um, also with the idea that this is a region um, that has been understudied historically. And so our goal is to sort of uh, publish uh, uh, on the Ohio Valley and to perpetuate interest in it as well. Matt, you have embarked upon a new project, a, another book project related to the Civil War. Uh, please tell our listeners about 
what you're working on. Yeah, I'm working on a, a new project that essentially I'm staying in, in the vein of, of Civil War memory, um, but I'm looking at Civil War memory as it applied to um, labor organizations, um, reformers, labor reformers, labor radicals, revolutionaries, anarchists even, um, between the 1870s and World War One. Um, so one thing I became interested in in this first project is how um, – different groups were using Civil War memory politically, not only Republicans and Democrats, but farmer, labor, um, radicals, um, the populist uh, movement, especially in the 1890s, the Greenback labor movement. Um, and while there's a, a vast and, and, and important and consequential historiography um, of a lot of these labor organizations, um, and there's also, on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's also exists a great uh, historiography on Civil War memory, uh, these two historiographies don't really overlap. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how uh, labor uh, organizations and working men and labor leaders, as well as the rank and file, um, employ the language and ideas and stories and symbols and uh, personalities of the Civil War in order to um, do anything from sort of build uh, class consciousness or, or, or political movements to uh, try to assimilate uh, ethnic workers into sort of an American story. Would an obvious invocation of Civil War imagery in this context be something like um, emancipate yourself from the industrial chains of the economy or something like that. Is this what you exactly, have in mind? Exactly. Uh, it's, it's a metaphor everyone understands and you can't um, express that metaphor in the 1870s or 1880s or 1890s without everyone immediately thinking about the great sectional conflict of the 1860s. Um, so the language of the civil war, not only sort of terms like slavery and emancipation and master, um, uh, but also very specific stories, um, you know, regarding John Brown or Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass are just absolutely ubiquitous in the labor movement uh, through through World War One. We have been talking today with Matt Staley, a professor of history at Albany State University. His new book is entitled The Loyal West, Civil War and Reunion in Middle America published by University of Illinois Press. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show today has been produced by Aaron Babcock. I want to once again thank Dana Brown for her many episodes of service to us as the producer of this show and wish her best in her uh, research and her future endeavors. I also want to thank Matt Staley, and uh, I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy a copy of his book and be a part of this great boom in interest in the Midwest and the Civil War. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. 
You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.